are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, welcome to the Jersey Guys podcast. This is Mark Ballow and I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne. And uh, we just talked to our guest uh, Jeff Martin from uh, Racer X, Badlands. Uh, Tom, how do you think that one went? Well, if you uh, would like stories of famous rock and rollers, this is the podcast because yes. he had a lot of stories. Um, great guest. We went over you know, his early days with the Surgical Steel, which was one of the most prominent uh, can't-miss bands that managed to miss <laughs> and that kind of morphed into racer x which had mild uh, notoriety in the mid 80s and uh, his time in badlands which who were a pretty big band at the time and a lot of great stories he was involved with ufo and um yeah i think one of the better shows we've done in a while yeah definitely like you said he had, had a lot of great stories and uh you know we talked about it and you'll you'll hear in the interview we uh we maybe we'll have him back uh do a part two at some point uh he is working on some new stuff so hopefully in the uh in the not too distant future uh we'll hear some more stuff from jeff martin and company and uh yeah this was a good one and uh i definitely want to hear some more uh stories and hear him expand on some of the stuff that he talked about in this interview so uh it would be cool to hear a, a part two of this one for sure but uh well, for now, let's uh, let's get to this interview with Jeff Martin, and uh, let's get right to it. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the Jersey Guys podcast. Thanks for talking to us tonight. Hey, how are you doing? Good to talk to you. Good, good. Thanks for uh, th- taking the time and, and chatting with us here. Um, Tom and I, what we do on our podcast is we like to kind of cover, when we have a guest on, we, we like to talk to them and kind of get their whole career, you know, and not just talk about a certain period or, or a certain time, you know. Uh, so I want to kind of start things off with you and and let's go back to uh, Jeff Martin in the early days and let's talk about, you know, prior to uh, Surgical Steel, prior to Ra- uh, Racer X and prior to Badlands. But let's talk about how you got into music, because you're pretty interesting in that you were a lead singer at, at periods and a drummer at other periods and, and at the same time even. So let's talk a little bit about that, how you got into music. OK, yeah. Yeah. Jack of all trades, owner of none or whatever the hell that is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wish I I wish I did one thing really good, yeah. which is procrastinate. There I do go. that very well. I'm doing it better than I ever have right now, actually. It comes with age. I, yeah. I'm doing it very yeah, well, yeah. too. No, no. <laughs> it, it comes with age, and it comes with getting beat up too many times, being too close to the top, and sliding down the mountain before you reach the top. You know, my, my life story. But, you know, I got to play with a lot of cool people. Did more than uh, most get to do you know so i guess i gotta consider myself lucky but you know i came from a family of uh, a big family big catholic family and um everybody in my i'm the baby i'm the last of all of them so i was listening to pat boone with my sister and you know talk talk about way back when i was just a baby and uh, all my brothers and sisters righteous brothers four seasons uh you know then uh Later on, you know, the, when my sister came back from a Beatles concert, completely torn to shreds, her her bouffant hair too was doing a doing a boohoo, and her you know mascara was all over the place. Her nylons were ripped up, and that's when I that's when I got into the Beatles. Is it? Man, I'd like to do that to girls. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess I chose the the wrong reason for the right path, but. Um, you know, and then later on, of course, my brother coming home after, you know, I, I started on a, as just a drummer, really. But uh, it, it's funny. I was, my mom at one point, I think it was fourth or fifth grade, going to Catholic school. We had these bathrooms between two of the classes. I don't think I've ever said this to anybody. But, um, and I didn't know I was even doing it, but I, I hated school. I was terrible. I was just a dreamer. That's all I did was dream, dream of being, being something or doing something else. 
And um, so I would always ask to go to the bathroom all the time. But when I'd go in there, I guess I would sing. <laughs> and yeah, because it was echoey and it sounded great. So uh, one morning, my I'm I'm singing at the 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 breakfast table, and all of a sudden, my mom rears up and slaps me as hard as she can right across her face, because the nuns had called her and told them that I am in the bathroom singing, and both classes can hear me, and they're all laughing like crazy. And I never even knew this. And I had to go in for a teacher-parent conference about this thing. They thought I, I was actually nuts. They thought I had, you know, I should have had a head the size of a watermelon. And, and I was, you know. And maybe I, maybe I am a, a little bit uh, screwed up in there because she had me at 42 back in 56. So put that together. And But anyway, that was my beginnings. And uh, as far as drumming, you know, Ringo Starr and... My first drum, my brother was a drummer, so there was all these miscellaneous parts in the attic when he went off to the Navy, like cymbals. So I'd nail those onto broomsticks, and my first snare drum was a TV tray with pennies and chain and a, and a, and a piece of towel over the top. <laughs> so that's my beginnings. And then, you know, when my brother, I wanted to be a drummer because of Ringo, but then my one of my other brothers, Bill, came home from college and sitting on our dining room table was Jimi Hendrix Are You Experienced? And that's when I wanted to become a good drummer. Not just that, not that Ringo isn't a good drummer, but you know, Mitch Mitchell, Ringo you know, the riffs, my God. So, yeah, that's when I really started taking things serious and I just lived up in my bedroom playing to uh, eight tracks actually. Um, my, my other brother went off to Vietnam, sent back all this gear and I always hit too hard, so I would wear out my I would wear out my records right away because I'd have to put like a dollar in, in change on the stylus to keep it from skipping when I hit the snare drum. <laughs> so when the A tracks came around, I couldn't make them skip, but I ha- I couldn't like slow the record down or play it over and over. Once that song went through, I had to play two other songs to get to the song I wanted. So. Yeah. So, you know, did did all that stuff and then started playing in bands at age 13. I was touring with guys 21 years old at age 13. I can't even believe my parents let me do this stuff. But I was touring all over Wisconsin because I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, with guys, you know, 21. And so I've seen and done things at a very early age I probably shouldn't have. So that's my beginnings. You know, and then uh, my pa- my dad worked at Alice Chalmers and retired and moved me off to Phoenix, Arizona and played in all sorts of cover bands there. Uh, one was with Greg Chason from Badlands. And, you know, when that that gig came up, when that gig came up uh, for Badlands, I kind of had a, a shoe in on that. So because we've always played together so well. So there you go. So all your Catholic school upbringing got ruined by the time you were 13, basically. Oh, God. It was ruined by the time I stepped through the door. Are you kidding me? Because <laughs> I'm a, vic- I, I a victim of st- 60s uh, Catholic school upbringing myself. Oh, my so. God. I st- and, and I, you know, there was the greasers, you know, because I was in Milwaukee. We had, if anybody doesn't know what a greaser is, he's kind of like Fonzie. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And we had groups of those. And then you had the jocks. And then you had the my category, which was the class clown. And that's all I ever did is try to tr- crack everybody up. So my knuckles are still recovering from the ru- the edge of the ruler from Sister Mary Ina. <laughs> so if you could tell us a little bit of the beginnings of Surgical Steel, which was a band that had all the earmarks of at one time becoming the next big thing and your, your association with Rob Halford and different band members and give us the whole lowdown on that band. Boy, was that a time. I should, I should not remember any of that stuff because it was so good, but I do remember a lot of it. Um, well, again, you know, I played with Greg and Greg was in surgical steel. They had an, another singer named Harley Van Kirk who, you know, wasn't working out, got fired. And Rob knew, or uh, Greg knew that I could sing because I was a singing drummer. I always wanted to be a singing drummer only because of Don Brewer from Grand Funk. You got it. And um, he's the one who made me put down my drumsticks. And 
they all said, well, he dances good. So, and I know he can sing, so he should be pretty good at, at, uh, at being a front man. So I was working out with those guys for two weeks, and our guitar player, Jim Keeler, was at a place called Mr. Lucky's and met Rob Halford there and told him, hey, we got a metal band, dude. You should come out and see us. So the first gig I had to do was at our manager who um, his father created, if you know what a hand masker is, it was at that time called a PC hand masker for masking tape and paper together. 3N bought that, but it was in their warehouse set up on those big rolls of paper that they make the smaller paper out of. And I made some kind of a bondage suit uh, just out of the blue from the hardware store and Tandy's leather shop, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what are these, just something that looks metal. And uh, the first time I had to sing as a lead singer, Rob Halford was out right out there hanging out at this gig. So, and from that, from that time on, we just hit it off. He tried to help us a lot, but um, you know, the powers that be once again, you know, trying to get to the top of that mountain and sliding down the other side. Uh, we just had, actually there's a, and I can't remember his name. He's, he's works. He was the A&R for Columbia. And then he went off to a couple of, he passed on Surgical Steel. He passed on Racer X twice. And then he also passed and more or less broke up Badlands. And I can't remember his name and I shouldn't say it anyway, but he, he's, he's the reason I've eaten more, you know, loaves of top ramen and dime burritos than any other human <laughs> being on this planet. How hard was it for you to get away from the Don Brewer, uh, gig that you would probably want to i guess want to have done i mean if he's a big influence and and playing the drums was that something well, difficult i, for I you never to get really no no i never really got away from it because you know I, I the thing about me is I, I i'm a drumming product of the 60s and 70s i never played drums in the 80s maybe just at the very end when i got into to badlands but that was even i think 90 or at the end of 89 or something like that i'd have to look at the map on that but so the whole don brewer drumming thing and those kind of drummers and singers that's where i came from vocally i came from priest and i came from deep purple uh that's when i first tried to really start singing was Ian Gillen and also um, Uriah Heep. I love David Byron. So those are, you know, my top three guys, more or less. But there's, you know, other guys in there. But, um, you know, I always had the chops and all that stuff from all my playing. So in the 80s, I would, I even played on uh, Hotter Than Fire on the first Racer X album because Harry couldn't quite get the groove of that. But he did the double bass part in the middle. He just slid that in. So, the thing that really got me going drum wise again was, and, and we were doing this right before I went for the, the Badlands gig. I was in a band with Russ Parrish, as you know, from Steel Panther, guitar player from Steel Panther, um, Satchel. And he was living with me. He was only 16 years old. And when, uh, I actually got booted out of Racer X, um, again, because all the A&R people, had to pick something out in the band that they didn't like and they didn't like the fast guitar playing and they didn't like me screaming all the time so you know uh and of course paul was already i think going to be going to mr big and wasn't telling anybody so you know five minutes after they fired me he fired himself and walked out of the thing and everybody stood there dumbfounded but but anyway um where where was i going again we we were we were we were on the tail end of surgical steel, he- heading toward Racer X. So yeah, heading towards. Oh yeah, um, we got uh, Paul d- decided right before I did the Badlands thing. Paul decided he got sick of just playing riffs at all these guitar seminars at MI and other places. So he said, "Hey, let's just put a band together, a goofy fake band. We'd call it the Electric. We named it the Electric Fence." And we learned like 165 songs. And we, you know, we had this whole spiel. We talked English. We all wore, which you could find in, in, uh, LA at the, the old clothes shops, all the old lady panther, you know, the furry panther clothes. And, and, and we fez wear, hats, we right? wore, <laughs> and fez hats and all sorts of goofy crap. We just, 
And our, our whole thing was we'd get, all get a tape of all the songs, and we'd all have a cassette tape of these songs, learn them for about three or four days, get together for one rehearsal, and then do these shows. And we did five of those. And uh, that really got my drum chops back because um, you know, we were playing all the songs that taught me in the first place, and I got to relearn them. So by the time I was going into Badlands, I was already playing the right kind of style to, to get that gig, you know? So. So there you go on that whole thing. And then, you know, of course, uh, there's a lot of guys up for the, that uh, Badlands gig. But I knew Greg and Jake both have a sweet tooth. So I, I had to audition for five days. And uh, every day I brought in a new, uh, I like to bake stuff, uh, you know, upside down turtle brownie one day, something else. I figured they'd keep calling me back if I, <laughs> if I kept bringing something good to eat. <laughs> And, and you know what? Ray was never at any of those at first. And here I, I learned that whole uh, first Badlands album, which I've learned a lot from, from Eric Singer about how to create a, a good song drum wise and, you know, not play the same beats all the way through it, you know, unless it warrants it. But learned a lot from him. But I never played one of those songs the whole time for those five days. It was all the Voodoo Highway songs. And what do, what, what do I come up with for it? And so on the fifth day, it should be on the seventh day, but this is not, you know, the creation of the world. Um, <laughs> on the fifth day, here comes, uh, Ray through the door in his just distressed white long leather jacket, smiling away at me, sits in, this is one song we were, I forget the song we had been working on. He sits down and he's never heard the song himself and just starts, nailing the son of a bitch i mean from top to bottom he gets the verses the choruses all the lyrics that i thought were lyrics but he does this thing called jibba jab and and to this day most of that stands and it's hard for him to find the words that fit with his jibba jab but that's how good he was at hearing a song for the first time and just nailing what the song is going to be vocally well just listen to the dusk album and you can hear what he's what you're talking about oh yeah there's a there's some poor little Japanese kid that wrote all those words on that album, 50% of it, he's, he should be getting publishing because <laughs> half of those words are just, Hey mama, I went to Congress and then I came down to the river. That's an old John yeah. Lee hooker trick. Oh, yeah. No, Singing jib. Yeah. Good, good no. sounding gibberish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, that was that whole deal. And then as soon as we finished that song, um, Jake goes to Ray, well, what do you think? He said, I like him. And that was it. And you're in. Not you're in. Not you're in. Not in. Yeah. So anyway, that's that. Well, yeah, let's go back to, because um, we, we jumped ahead a little bit to Badlands, but let's kind of talk about, and I know Tom was big on, on Racer X, so let's talk about that that period of your career. Yeah, that was crazy. Uh, you know, uh, I guess Paul had been, or Mike Varney, who I had done a couple of, uh, got a couple songs on his label before I did any Racer X song stuff. I can't even remember. One was called, I thought, Laser Lady. I think the first one was Laser Lady. And another one was The Beauty, The Power, I think. And uh, through St. Michael and a couple other bands that, you know, Greg was into. And um, so, uh, you know, he sent me these tapes, and, and it's funny because the first song I wrote to was, I, the, the working title was Don't Change a Thing. And, of course, that one never flew, uh, and we never recorded that song until the very last song of the very last Racer X album, which is called Endless. And, you know, I could just never write anything other than what I first came up with, but it was never... It was kind of goofy and never worked. So Paul came up with something, and then it, then it got rolling. So, But, yeah, when I got that tape and listening to Paul, I was just going, oh, my God. And I'm in Surgical Steel at the time, which, you know, we were good for that area. And this uh, big, big fish in a small pond. We got a movie that we did with, you know, uh, Clancy Brown, the, the, the guy who was in Highlander and was the Kurgan that ate small children and, and did all that stuff. But anyway, having, you know, listening to Paul play and then being in a band with, they were more or less 
they, they, they liked more how their hair looked than what their riffs were doing, you know? And, and to go to a band or a player that's just completely the most amazing musician you've ever been with. So, you know, we met. Uh, I, I drove my motorcycle. I had a GPZ all the way from Phoenix, Arizona to L.A. We met first thing in the morning. He could only get the soundstage at the old part of MI on Hollywood Boulevard. We'd meet there 8 o'clock in the morning. I had to sing at 8 in the morning. I'm not a morning singer, as a lot of singers aren't. And uh, I wrote a few things, uh, came down there, and I didn't know it was still – I thought I already had the gig. You know, and we were going down there working to, to put the album together. And Alderetti was there, and Harry Chessa, who I'm working with right now, by the way. Uh, Harry Chessa, I'm working with him, first drummer of Race Direct. We did Street Lethal. It was one of the first songs we worked on. And the funny thing is, a week before I came down there, I'm sitting at a, a light on my motorcycle. I'm behind a 1969 black charger, just like in Bullet. And the abbreviated uh, license plate on it was street lethal and it's when I came up for the title for that and so really uh, I went to, to visit my brother after that first meeting with the band in San Diego and I got a call from Paul and he goes hey you're in we like you you know and I go oh I thought I already was <laughs> you know, it was just like okay all right let's get to work so I came back there did some other things so really from then on didn't need a lot to, to do a lot of rehearsing. Those guys did the rehearsing on their own. They figured I could just, you know, do my vocals the way I'm going to do them uh, in the studio. And uh, everything was done over the phone uh, or over the mail with cassettes. And, uh, you know, came back over. We got in Paul's old Buick, which had a hole right by the, uh, right by the uh, accelerator pedal so you could see the white line if it was foggy out and still drive because the hole went right through the floor to the ground. That's an interesting <laughs> feature. Oh yeah. He gave that away on KNEC. As a matter of fact, he probably, I hope he had a, a disclaimer on that thing, but uh, yeah. So uh, we just drove out, did that thing. Oh, actually no, that, that Buick was the second album. The first one was John Eldoretti's um, VW bug, an orange bug that he had. And we went, I, we, they drove down there in that, and I flew in. But funny thing about that bug, it burnt to the – they picked me up at the airport while we were working on Second Heat, and we got right past Westwood where the big veterans' uh, memorial area is, and it's lit on fire. Flames coming up in the back seat towards me. Alderetti pulls over. They all jump out of the car. I'm in the, stuffed in the back seat with three guitars and all my stuff. I throw everything out. And we watched it burn to the ground Wow! <laughs> right there. And w when they opened up that trunk where the, uh, the back where the engine is, that there's got to be some magnesium in there because it was like a spotlight coming out of that thing, shining up towards the heavens. But, uh, but yeah, a lot of that stuff, except, you know, Second Heat, we all worked on together because by then I had moved and my girlfriend, now wife, we moved to uh, – we moved to uh, L.A. by then and out of Phoenix, and I was completely out of out of surgical steel and, and dealing with all that stuff. So, so how did the second album come about with the addition of uh, Bruce Boulay and um, Scott Travis, which turned out to be the classic lineup? Yeah, Paul uh, was well. Bruce was at MI. He was from Indiana. Uh, his dad is a noted uh, duck deep decoy carver and painter <laughs> if you want to know some weird wow. stuff about bruce uh, i got a couple of his his ducks they're worth like a lot of money but anyway um he was at mi uh and paul and him would play together and you go wow you know really good bruce was always good at sweeps and sweeps were kind of the new thing it's kind of the easier way of, of showing you can play fast and do insane stuff but bruce was really good at them and Bruce had that bluesier side to him, and Paul just said, well, this will be a really cool thing to add to this lineup. And, and of course, Harry was sent back to um, to Austria because he had a green card for only a few years to go to school. So we only did a few shows with him, and then he was gone. But the funny thing is, and I, like I said, I'm working with him now on an album project. 
that was supposed to be the 35th anniversary of the Street Lethal album. But we've kind of blown past that through my procrastination. But that that's that's another story. But um, he took back with him to Vienna the one nine hundred sex talk sexy to you number, mm-hmm. and he and he's a fucking millionaire. <laughs> really? <laughs> From that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he when he was here on Hollywood Boulevard, he's sleeping on a, on a mattress. Now, now now he's got all these Porsches and he's got a beautiful place up in the Alps. And lives in Vienna and it's just so funny. But uh, yeah, I'm working with him and a guy named Milan Polak. Uh, we're calling it Lethal X, or it'll be called Planet 12. I'm not sure. I'm still in in the throes of it, but really, really great stuff. And Paul is actually playing on two songs on this album. So now on this second album, I just wanted to ask you one question, uh, question real quick. Uh, the song "Heart of a Lion," which everybody knows, was penned by Judas oh, Priest, yeah. which is a tremendous song. How did you guys actually get that onto your second record? Well, I had the tape of it. I had the tape of that one, and there's another one. Uh, you know, and uh, we're still really close with, with Rob. We kind of, I don't know what, you know, the music business is funny with people that come and go in your life, and unfortunately, Rob's one of them. I don't see him that much anymore. We we don't talk, and, you know. Uh, but at that time, we were really close, really good friends. And, uh, you know, I, I was with my first wife at that time. And um, she had the tape and go, hey, I still have this tape. Do you want, you know, you want to take this with you just in case? And there's two songs on there. One was called Bad Girls Wear Leather that turned into Eat Me Alive. And the other one was Heart of a Lion. And their version was fantastic. It was my favorite song. It came back from Ibiza, uh, Ibiza, Spain, where they were recording and played the whole thing for me. I go, oh, I like you know, bad, the, our, our uh, heart of a lion. And it didn't make it on the album. And I'm going, wow, what the fuck happened? I mean, that's the best song. He goes, I know, Jeffy, I know. It's the other guys don't think so. And, and there it sits, you know. And I go, wow, you know. And that was like, oh, maybe a year uh, had gone by. And I was with Racer X then. And I go, hey, I got this song from Rob. And I played it for everybody. He goes, wow, why don't you give him a call? So I did. It was my birthday at the time, November 9th, actually. My birthday is three days away. And I call up Rob and go, Rob, that song. Yeah, are you guys ever going to do that? He goes, I doubt it. You know, and I go, well, what do you think? You know, we were searching for songs. We had to write one while we were there at uh, Prairie Sunwell Unit, which is called... Uh, Oh, it, it's my least favorite song of all, so I probably can't remember the title. Um, um, but I said, check it, check it out, and see if you know we could do this. And you know, of course, you keep all your publishing and everything, and we just want to record it. And he calls me back maybe a half an hour later. He goes, Jeffy, happy birthday, man! You got it. And the funny thing is, so we do it, and you know, Paul and and Bruce had to figure out that dual lead and all that stuff, right? And the place where we were just hanging out in and we recorded it the next day, you know, practically, you know, everybody learned it right off the cuff. Now that was basically, that was a song that was a leftover from the turbo album, right? Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that when that album came out, Glenn Tipton about lost his goiter and said, what the fuck? What is it? When did this happen? You know, cause Glenn is kind of more or less the musical director of Judas Priest, or at least I think so. And uh, I don't know who Rob asked, but he didn't ask him. <laughs> well, if you read K.K. Downing's book, he's a musical director and a lot more than that, too. Oh, yeah. Musical dictator, maybe. Dictator. Maybe, a little, yeah. maybe a little smudge on his upper yeah. lip. The d- digital dictator. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the song actually did end up surfacing on this massive Judas Priest box set that came oh, out yeah. about 15, 16 years ago. It, that's the yeah, only the place original it's ever, version. The original version. That's the only place it's ever surfaced on this pretty expensive box set. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I wished I had done a good job vocally as he did. I just love the way he sings that song, and I tried to do that, but, of course, it's always going to come out your way. Yeah. Well, talk about your 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 time with around that era with uh, kind of being in the studio there with uh, with Judas Priest on that Turbo album and doing some backgrounds and th- things like that. Was that was that the tur- yeah? Well, me and my my first wife, uh, 
Rob had flown us out to um, to Nassau where they were recording. They were recording a compass point out there. And it's funny, you know, like Julio Iglesias was there recording uh, the guy from the Talking Heads. And you'd see him, you know, walking around looking like he was walking on stilts. He's so tall. Um, I got to play uh, pool with Julio, Julio Iglesias, 150 bucks. Um, that's, there's my claim to fame. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, well, let's see. There's, I, I, I sang on, I, I sang on wild nights and hot, crazy days. Is that on turbo? Cause I, I lose where I'm at. Cause one, one was in LA Okay. and I think that was in LA, but I, I wrote, he was having trouble writing lyrics for, uh, oh, I can't remember the song, but I, I wrote the whole thing. I, and they, they ended up using a whole verse and part of a chorus and stuff. And I never got any, uh, you know, they never said that I was part writer or stuff. But, you know, he just put us up. I was staying with Rob's mom, dad, and his sister and brother at a cottage right on the ocean in um, the Bahamas. So I said, okay, I think I think we're square. <laughs> we're square on this one. Is this the and sister Rob that was married going, to Ian Hill? Yes. Yeah, Sue. Yeah, Sue. Great people. We were like we're like family. You know, they're just such good. Yeah, I mean, Rob's parents were. You sometimes wonder, well, how did this guy become who he is? You know, and why is he such a cool guy? And then you meet his parents, and you go, oh, okay, that's why. Okay. They're just sweet, whole, just the the best. You know, just unbelievable. They they're both past now, but just the best people. And, uh, so anyway, yeah, we, I was out there and that, that's kind of how I got into writing on that one. And I don't think I sang on, on that one. I remember, I remember the producer, um, saying, you, Robo, you, you two guys sound like a couple chicks in that. <laughs> this was Tom <laughs> Allen, I guess. I guess. A, yeah. Yeah. It was Tom Allen. Robo. Hey, Robo. He's has, he's got his whole, Court of Crown Royal sitting right up on the desk with a shot glass, and that that'll be done by the end of the night. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was an era when sounding like chicks was a very positive thing. Yeah, well, I was <laughs> I was going to say that, and looking right, yeah. oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, while still screwing chicks. Right, right. That's the that's the triple play right there. There it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're going to take a little detour into uh, Badlands, and then we'll come back to the the, the second incarnation of uh, Racer X. If you could tell everybody how you made your entrance into a band that had a huge uh, debut record that really got a lot of yeah, variety, right. and what it was like to f- to fill those shoes. Right, in an era of all those bands that never you know really went that far but had good songs but it's just those 80s schlocky you know that 80s schlocky poisony um kind of music you know uh badlands comes in sounding kind of like a cross between bad company and and led zeppelin humble pie and it's got probably still to this day i have not heard a lead singer as good as ray gal i I just haven't you know there's people that there's people that try to there's the Dino Jurassic guy who is just mm-hmm. fantastic and he he's is. working with White Snake and he just nails that stuff. But there's still something not there. There's that Janis Joplin element that that Ray had that rusty, that rusty Southern comfort attitude and 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 the unpolished part of Ray that just exudes from somebody like you know, the lead singer for a bad company himself or, or any of those guys that they just have that you'll never put your finger on. Well, that was know? that but Steve it, Marriott thing that he had going yeah. on too. Yeah. Yeah. That too. He had so much of that going on. And then, and then, you know, if you listen to that eternal idol album, the, the Gillen years, Oh uh, Jesus. Christ. I, 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 I like Tony. Martin. Oh my God. But he, <laughs> he annihilates Tony Martin on those songs. I'm sorry. Oh. Well, he, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. And it's amazing. Yeah. He, he, I remember that whole story of why he backed out. I mean, the, the uh, manager for black Sabbath, which is, you know, uh, Ozzy's Ozzy's wife's uh, father. Um, 
right when they were finishing up his track says what made him try to sign a contract with every any anything that Ray would ever do because he knew he was going to be a huge star and I don't think AIDS was around yet so uh, uh, he tried to get 50% of make him sign off 50% of anything even if he owns a taco bell sounds like Don Arden yeah, yeah. He's, he was going to get fifty. Well, it sounds like his sounds like his daughter. His daughter, yeah, yeah. that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the nut doesn't fall far from the tree. No, not at all. Right. So that's when he says he wasn't going to sign it. He wasn't going to sign it. And he said, "Well, we'll get another singer." And he said, well, "Go fucking get one." You know, because he's one of you Jersey guys and New York guys. He's not going to take shit. God bless him. Oh yeah, no. I mean, I agree. I mean, Tom and I. I mean, we both very uh, hold uh, Ray Gillen in really high regards. As far he's as my favorite a, singer, singer. Yeah. and that says a lot because I go back to the mid '60s. So yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of singing. I've got some. <laughs> I've got some of our uh, old when we're working on songs. His jibba jab stuff that you just wouldn't believe. I mean, because that's when he can really go off, you know, with more of his trills and all this stuff because he's not focusing on words he's focusing on melody and and uh movement and uh he was just the king of that stuff he was so yeah he really yeah. was so anyway and, you know, uh, he was yeah and i i roomed with him i would him and him and me were were roommates through the whole thing you know i felt i've seen i've seen things i'd like to forget and you know that whole age thing is just you know they no one talks about the mental part of that and he just never came to grips of having that, mm. that, that, that thing. And we pressed him time and time again, and he would never come across and tell us, yeah, I'm sick. And, and um, I, he was such a, a charismatic, awesome dude that he would never hurt anybody. But there's just, you know, I've seen him with girls doing it unprotected. And, and, and I'm just going, well, he can't have it because he's he is this awesome guy who yeah. would never hurt anybody. But that that's why to this day I think there's just a mental there's some mental thing and they could give it its own name that people that had that and can't come to grips with it, you know, had, you know. Well he's kind of a guy who had everything going for him because aside from that voice, he had the looks. Oh, can you imagine where he'd be now? He'd be with he'd be with Queen, or he'd be with somebody just just absolute because there there's a handful of people in on this planet that even live or dead had what he had. Yeah, and and that's all there is. And and then you get into his looks, and you go, holy shit! Stage you know, presence. What is he? Right. The, the guy. Yeah, had, everything. Yeah, and it, he had everything. I, I don't know if you're ever familiar with. He sang in a project called Phenomenon. Did you ever hear that? No, I didn't. It, it was I an AOR project in the in in the UK in the late '80s, put together by Mel Mel Galley from Trapeze, and it was all AOR. It wasn't it wasn't hard rock or metal. It was AOR, mm-hmm. and Glenn Hughes was on it. John Wetton was on it, and Gillen I think sang three songs on it. T- totally stole the show. I was the best singer on it. And he was with legendary AOR singers, so that the guy could do. Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, dominate yeah. anything. Whenever we went to. Whenever we played in London, which we did like a, which is a long story, we'd have to do a whole other thing about the London trip because I had quit riding home on my motorcycle. This is a short synopsis. Get halfway home. Ray had just quit. So I was going home. I'd had enough because I was sleeping on Paul's couch for the last half a year. And uh, halfway home, my my what, uh, now wife, then girlfriend, listen to this. I, I'm calling her and telling her, hey, I'm almost home. I'm done with this. Listen to this. They got the highway patrol looking for me. He said he would do this tour in in uh, all of, all through England and uh, you know through the neighboring countries and stuff. And that I had to return immediately. And so that next day, I had to turn my bike around, ride all the way back. The next day, get on a plane and get on this shitty little bus with Ray not speaking to Jake or Greg. Ray had his girlfriend with him, and I was the go-between. It was this is spinal. This is beyond Spinal Tap. Rob Reiner would pay me big money for for you know a day of me t- talking about this this tour. And um, yeah, there's so many stories. What's, what's that, soured up? I guess that's for another time. What soured up in the camp with with this band at this time? Because the second album came out was well received. I didn't think it was quite as good as the first album, but it, there was some great songs on it. 
yeah. what well you know what what had happened is is we were in a rehearsal place uh near where greg lived in manhattan beach and um for some reason jake decided to make greg the sounding point of the label and the label wanted these songs done lyrically and and ray wasn't finishing the words like i said he, he would have hard time finding lyrics and this was a dusk album at that time and he wasn't he wasn't fessing up with any lyrics for this stuff so we could go in the studio and do it and uh you know and Greg was a sounding point and he wasn't taking that from Greg and, and he just said, fuck you guys, you know, with, with your accent, the good Jersey fucking, you know, <laughs> fuck you, fuck you, you know, right. that, that kind right. of, and he was out the door. And then about three or four days later, I just went, oh, I'm undone myself. So I was headed back, but then, then we got this tour and, the stuff that happened on the first show on stage and the last one is a whole nother story that I can tell you at some other time because it's too long. We'll do, to a, do, we'll do a part know. two of this because there's yeah, a lot yeah. to get, a lot to cover and uh, we're oh just scratching God. the surface. Oh, and then my time with Michael Schenker and that blowout. You need to hear that one where Spike bipped him backstage. The thing, the things, the things that Spinal Tap is made of. There you go. Well, well, I wanted to ask you something about a little bit of, of a timeline here, because you talked about how, you know, the, the band Badlands was breaking up. You basically got on the road to go back home and, and all that stuff. But talk a little bit about the, the you know, Raid had left at that point. You said, talk about, did you ever have any experience when the band was bringing in, was it Debbie Holiday, the female vocalist? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know what? Looking back, I wish we would have went there, you know? Um, she was good looking. She sang okay, you know. Next to trying to fill Ray's shoes, sure. get it? Yeah. You know, we'd still be looking from that day till today, and I, I still don't see that person. I mean, she had a ballsy voice, and it it would have probably worked. Yeah, she but, did, yeah. but it, you know, and you know, you lose a lot of your. Jake you really lose, liked her. And, you lose a lot of your fan base by going with a f- oh, female single. One well, one yeah, of which is the you guy you're what? talking to. So. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? You know what, though? That was just the beginnings of all these other great female lead vocalists coming in, you know, to, to existence in bands. T- so we would have been. Yeah, the- it's a tough sell with the metal crowd, though. Yeah. It really is. I'm telling I know. you, it's a tough sell. It is. Well, I got a vote and I voted against it, and, and, and Greg voted against it. Jake loved it. But he went along with our vote, so we didn't do that, and we ended up with John West. I was just going to ask you about John West, who actually went on to become quite famous singer, sang on a million different yeah. metal bands. No, he was he was he was good. Yeah, he was good, but he just didn't have that certain something that Ray did, and that's you know when we finally did uh, a showcase for another label, which that said A and R person was there. Um, he pretty much said that you know. He said that me and, and Greg were too old <laughs> and that um, John West just didn't have that star quality. Hmm. Well, he was and wrong that on that. He would, yeah. yeah, yeah, and of course. He was wrong with Racer X. He was wrong with Surgical Steel. He's, he's just wrong, you know? And um, so, uh, yeah, so he, he came, and this is the last time I talked to Jake. He, Jake said, well, he told me all that that thought me and Greg were too old. John didn't have star quality and that he wanted to start a new band with Jake and try something because he believed Jake had what it takes to, to go on. So that's what, that's really what uh, broke the band up right there. And that's after working with John for, for a while, but him and him and at the end, him and uh, John and Jake did not get along. It almost came down to blows and, you know, Jake was going to beat him up and kill him and all that kind of stuff. So all that goofy crap came into to play towards the end there too. It was, it just, you know, and, and of course, after we did that, uh, that English Euro tour, Scotland and all through there, um, Ray just did, that was it. He didn't want to be in the band again. And, and he went back to, he went back to uh, New York. Actually, my wife was had, had, in her fifth month and had difficulty with with her uh, with the child in her my daughter and i was in the studio when i got that call with ray singing for ann lewis who is a japanese pop star who used to make so much money uh doing doing these things that's the last time i saw ray 
and I had to bolt out of there, you know, singing, singing for that thing. Now, you also got involved with a band called Red Sea with a singer named Robin Basori, who did sound un- uncharacteristically very similar to Ray Gillen at times. And Greg was in that band And they were, also, they were right? kind of going, yeah, and they were going for that vibe, too. And it was a Christian rock album sort of thing. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, that was kind of cool. And, and, you know, we threw that together real fast. I mean, that, that went together right in the studio. Uh, they showed us the songs right in the studio. I don't really remember doing a whole ton of of rehearsing, but you know, I had my same Voodoo Highway kit, which uh, you know was a handmade Joe Montaneri from your side of the world, from up in Boston. This guy, his um, Montaneri family were shipbuilders, and the, the great grandson or whatever, uh, he's the one who started making drums, and they were just like. I could go into what these things are made of and what 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 it about was like nine grand for just four drums. And I worked with, I was working with uh, the Voodoo Highway thing for three months. We were putting those songs together, and I didn't get one dime of payment. And when we went to go in the studio, I said I saw those drums because they had just come from the Nam show, and they they ended up at Guitar Center. I said, you can pay my first three months with this with this drum set and we're even so so i had i still had those drums which sound you know they i've never heard another set sound like them i could pick them out of a, a million you know albums if they were played on it and i i used that that kid on that red sea album you can hear the, the, the same sound as the voodoo highway album you know that red sea album had great production had really big rhythm rhythms rhythm section production out of the bass and the drums yeah, no, it did. It, it was uh, it, it was good, and it had some cool songs too. And you know, did you and Greg uh, kind of come along as a package? Yeah, I think so. Well, you can hear by the songs they were going for the Badlands thing. So, you know, the thing about me and Greg is when we play together, it could be a song we just heard, and it sounds like because Greg knows the way I play, I know the way we follow each other. He likes to follow me. Actually, he plays drums now more like me when i was younger oh really <laughs> it's kind of i gotta listen to him and go oh yeah i forgot that one and uh so he knows what i'm gonna do so he follows along with me perfectly and it sounds like we've been working on these riffs together forever but it's, that's not the truth it's just the way we play together and, and it always has been and that comes from playing together me just out of high school um playing desert boondockers together with all sorts of different bands and playing UFO stuff. I mean, that's why I got the UFO gig. I was uh, and went and toured with them after the Covenant album. Namesley Dunbar played uh, drums on that because uh, I just had that stuff down from playing it with Greg and, and Jim McMillan for so many years. What was your experiences on uh, the road with the bulk of the classic UFO uh, lineup? Oh, it was fun, but it was quirky. It got weird. I bet. You know, this is this was. Uh, this was a little strange period of time. Michael has just come back, and uh, I just, if there's anybody I'd like to play with again, it'd be him, you know? And in the studio, he's just a dream to work with. He's so creative and loves all your ideas. And, but at that period, I think he was had a lot of uh, anxiety and was taking drugs for anxieties and stuff like that. He was at that time using a mascara pencil and putting a little cross between his eyes. I remember. He said that. it was his third eye. I remember that. Yep. And um, just weird stuff. So the, the, one of the things that about this tour was nobody could drink. You know, um, there's no drinking, no drug doing or anything. So Phil Mogg um, snuck a beer, and, and Michael saw it. So oh, he gets a beer. I get a beer too. Yeah. And uh, before you know it, it was two, then it was three, then it was eight. So drinking took off. They had a unspoken wall between the two dressing rooms that no one waded into somebody else's waters. and Just, you know, stuff you can't explain unless you were the roadie for all those years to find out, you know, what made you this pissed off and you know you want the money because you guys are great together but you just can't stand to be around this person and that's another long story with that whole last gig where, where it was Thanksgiving day, night and we were playing in Manchester I think just about to go back into London and Spike came into uh, 
the uh, Phil Moggs and Pete Way's side of the fence. And Pete was kind of like he was he was definitely lukewarm water. <laughs> he was he was in the middle between it was definitely between Phil and Michael, whatever these uh, controversies were. And um, you know, Michael decided to wade into their waters while Spike was in there, and Spike just had broken his leg. He's got a cane and had a had a Spike, of course, is Phil Mugg's nephew. Oh, that, okay, right. From, from the Choir boys. boys, right. Yeah, and and Michael came in there drunk and shit and pushing people or doing something that pissed off Spike, and Spike just hammered him. I, I wasn't in there. I was in the bus at the time, you know, hearing the wine glasses clink, clink at home. And if you've ever been at, you know, out on the road for a while, you wish you were home for Thanksgiving, you know. I'm feeling forlorn, and someone runs in the bus, Shanker just got bit by by Spike and knocked out, knocked the fuck well, out. Well, Phil Mogg had done and that to him numerous times in the seventies, also. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, probably so. And he ran off into the night, and we thought he was gone, you know. But the next day, he shows up for the gig, you know. No, that was Manchester where he shows up for the gig, and you know, we heard he was in the house. Everything was set up to go, and I don't know. He, he, we have intro music come on, and Michael comes to the front my drum stage and he's got these big sunglasses on and he pulls down his glasses dude and i'm not kidding you it's one of those bologna sandwiches mm-hmm. you get in a magic shop for a yep. shiner it's the biggest black i've ever seen in your life it it looks like a volcano of brown and and blue and and uh, just complete and he's smiling at me and i go oh great these you know everything's cool but by the third song, the other pain pills they gave him, and along with the beers, kicked in. And the rest of the show is him running at Phil Mogg as hard as he can with the front of his guitar, trying to stab him. Mm, wow. trying, and, and, and Pete Way trying to hold Michael back from doing this. And Pete Way's bass sounding like a water buffalo in heat. <laughs> wow. I mean, you, and, you uh, talk about Spinal Tapish stuff before. I mean, geez, you imagine sitting there behind a the drum kit watching all this go on? Oh, and you know, here I am with one of my favorite bands of all time. I'm the drummer of my favorite band, and this buffoonery is going on, and all these, uh, and all these people in the audience are just getting hosed, you know. And I'm, I'm get the professional side of me hates that. It's all about the fans, first off, you know, doing a good show for the fans. And at one point, you know, the whole crowd's going, "Shanko, like the whole crowd, because they're watching this, you right. know." And, and and uh yeah finally uh and and of course michael's playing like complete crap and you know but you know what if anybody has come back from the depths of hell and that whole shit that he went through and and i got into a big fight with him in the last uh albums i was doing with him, i did two msg albums in that plot album which was a fantastic hearing michael play like uh, uh rolling stone style guitar is just amazing that was so fun to do that album and, uh, you know, that, that, yeah, that was a little heartbreaking, but you know, he's come back from that, the dark side of Michael Shanker and now he's shining like a new penny and I, I love seeing it. I'm one of the rare UFO fans that I always preferred Paul Chapman in UFO and I preferred Shanker in MSG. I thought his best work was in MSG and uh, oh, yeah. I, I thought Chapman was actually a better fit for them than Shanker was. Hmm. But yeah. that's usually not the uh, the way most people think. But yeah, yeah. Well, there's nobody that plays like Shanker. No, just is. no, there, there mean, isn't. And and it's the 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 way you know I've played with. Look at the people I've got to play with. I mean, I got to pinch myself sometimes. How did I get to play with all these great guitar players? And they're all so different. Every one of them. But Shanker is the most different from all of them. He would use the same strings on his guitar, and he wouldn't break them. He had this light touch. And if if you look at when he he wouldn't let anybody near his guitar when it got to the sweet spot that he liked, and you would look at the strings, and they were sawed half through, on the frets, because he you know look how he plays Doctor Doctor and stretches those notes. He's he's going he one finger is going to the left and the other one's going to the right, and he's pulling them together to make this unbelievable sound that no one makes, right. you know. But when they get those grooves in them, he goes, that's when I like it. That's when the, the train is on the tracks, you know? 
crazy, crazy little things like that you see, and you just scratch your head and go, how did this, you know, how did this evolve into this? All these hours of playing on stage. And, pre- and he was a notorious, I never saw him without a guitar in his hand the whole time I was in the studio in Arizona, you know, never. And I, as a matter of fact, one time there's a little extra room off the, off the uh, control board room, and he would just be in there warming up before he does stuff. And I, he didn't know I was around. And I don't think he plays like this when anybody's around. But he was doing full on. And I'm not even kidding you. I know, I know the difference between people trying to play like Paul Gilbert. You know, his fast playing and his picking and his stretch notes mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. It sounds like he's hitting the pick on it. He's not doing hammer-ons. It's a pick on the strings for every note. And it sounds like when you, you used to put playing cards in in right, your, bicycle, your bicycle, right? And the popsicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, popsicle sticks. It's pop, 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 you know. Um, and he was doing this fast stuff like Paul, and it was spot on. But you never hear him do it on an album. No, he always, no, I, yeah. Now, he always played with like a, like a, like a, like a type of like melodic, melodic sense to his playing. Mm-hmm. And didn't do a lot of overplaying, which I, I, I like because I think some of the best oh, guitar players are the guys that, don't overly play. Well, I tell you what, my favorite guitar player right now, and I can't even tell you his name, but have you heard of the band Mesa, M-E-S-S-A? No. An Italian band? No. Check out check out their third album. I just saw them, uh, uh, well, my daughter turns me on to these bands. This band is the, the female vocalist, really tuned down, but his it's the most well-rounded guitar player I have ever heard really? in my life hmm. and, it's, and this guy it's just a kid uh I'll, I'll i'll tell you right now to go get the it's i think it's called close is the is the album and it's just an amazing album but the guitar work on it and the 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 tones that he chooses to use and even the bass play everybody in this band the drummer sounds like he's keith moon with a whole shitload of drums but he's got a four-piece kit and he's just unbelievable it's my new favorite band. They're just amazing. They're that extra thing I always look for in rock and roll. Wow, interesting. Who's your favorite drummer of all time? You know, you know what? You, you talk. I'd have my daughter talk to you right now, and he goes, "Don't ask my dad whatever his favorite thing is." I can never. I don't have a favorite of anything because everything's always a mix with me. Well, th- but, throw, you know, throw, throw, throw three in there off the top of your head. Bottom. Bonham, Ian Pace, Mitch Mitchell. There you go. Oh, very close to three. Very close. Don line. Brewer, you know, uh, uh, Ginger Baker, those guys. Those guys are the guys I love. Okay. So I always preferred Buddy Miles with Hendrix than Mitch Mitchell. So um, yeah, no, no, that was never. And I worked in the studio with where uh, Ainsley Dunbar was in there and telling the story. And of course, I didn't want to bust his balloon by saying thank god mitch mitch became the drummer because man he added so much in those early ones the written and mitch even said i overplayed a bit but he made it fit you know i would love to see uh, one camera on mitch mitchell at the monterey pop festival because every time Mm -hmm. the camera pans past him He's just his his nuts are flying. Yeah, no, he's a mad man. He was an absolute man. He had great sound too. Great snare drum sound. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But of course, having having Kramer there running the knobs with him, you know. Right. I got to do some work with the with Scream, and 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 he was he was their producer and engineer. And half the time we were like me and Ray sang on 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 those albums uh, together. Did a lot of backgrounds and. it was like kids around a campfire with the with with the guy with the Smokey the Bear hat. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just can you tell us a story about when you were on a van with Led Zeppelin right, right. and you black light, you know? And it's just like, oh sure, you know, he's getting paid. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Talk about stories. Oh my god, you know. You were involved with that. That mm-hmm. was the Scream album with Karabi and Aldretti and Bullet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and Ray did all those. Did, me and Ray did all those backgrounds together, and we sang together on everything. You never, we never, you know. We were good together singing on stuff like that, even though they didn't let me sing on the Voodoo High, Highway album that much. And then there was a second Scream album. I actually have a, have a demo CD of it, but there wasn't with Karabi. It was with a di- different singer. 
I think we're I think we were on that one too because one was at one studio and the other one was at uh, one was at Cherokee and the other one was way the hell out on Mulholland Drive as you're coming out of Thousand Oaks. Uh, it was all all American. Okay. It's the uh, Three Dog Night studio. Yeah. I mean, it's just Three Dog Night shit all over the walls. That's it was their personal studio that once that band wasn't working that well together and the one guy was doing so many drugs. You know, he didn't even know what a studio was. Um, they started renting it out to other people. But uh, well, uh, Jeff, we touched on a little bit earlier. Uh, you talked about what you're currently going to be doing. Can you can you expand upon that a little bit? What what you got going on right now? Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, the 35th anniversary for Street Lethal album came up a few years ago, and, and uh, it was a few years back, uh, like right before COVID, I think. And we started working on this thing. But the only reason I started it is because the guitar player that Harry Chessa, he's the original drummer from Racer X, um, he was working with this guy named Milan Polak. And he's also an Austrian, but he lives in Italy. I still haven't met him in person. Um, and we did one song called 90 Tons of Thunder. I just wrote something to something he had. And I said, man, this sounds like early Racer X, you know. And he doesn't want to. He doesn't even want to really be thrown into that thing but uh you know i just said well you know uh we can start from zero or we can have some kind of a track record to pull people in to buy this thing you know that's your choice on something like that so you know get over it and we'll we'll get on with it but anyway we did that it turned out so good i go well, why don't we try to do an album in the 35th anniversary is coming up we can call it lethal x and the, the cover i'd already had done it's um a new F1, it's it's like the first cover, which is, you remember is a really goofy-looking race car with a guy in it coming out of Chicago or where the, the, the artist is from Chicago. So I said, well, let's have much better artwork of a newer F1 car, and you're in the cockpit with the driver, and the driver's looking in the rearview mirror, and in the rearview mirror is the car from Street Lethal Album. Like he's, like he's behind him, we're moving forward, and... And uh, so um, uh, that was the cover, and it was going to be like a, you know a tribute to that album, not 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 a Racer X album, you know. So, but now that we're past that, I'm trying to see where we should go with it. But the songs that I've written with Milan, him and I write together like I write. I've written with nobody else on this planet. These songs are just fantastic, and uh, hopefully it'll come out. I'm just trying to. Do sing. I need to sing two more songs. Okay, you have a timeline and on it. At we all? need a we and we. No, not really. You know, uh, the bass player I'm trying to hook this thing up with. His name is Polo Jones, and he's a Cherokee, half Cherokee black guy uh, from San Jose that I got hooked up with and did some things with. And he's just an amazing bass player, even more amazing human being. And he is, if you've ever heard of a, a musician from Italy called Zucchero. He is the mu- he's the musical director for him. He's kind of like a European, um, oh, what the hell is his name from from Jersey himself. God, me and my me and my brain. And I get I get bright I get Bidenisms all the time. One. <laughs> me too. <laughs> brain just completely farts. And but anyway, he's really well known over there. And 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 yeah, I mean they've been all summer opening up for the Rolling Stones. So that's how big. Oh they wow. Are. But he's got a really great studio in San Jose, and I'm trying to get him to play the bass and help me, you know, produce and mix it up and get this thing done. So we'll see what happens. Uh, it, it's really great stuff. It's got some racer exisms, but it's got newer, newer stuff. Uh, and some of it sounds really 80s, and some of it doesn't. We'll see, you know. We'll see what happens. We have to market this mm-hmm. for the Japanese audience because I'm sure they would uh, eat it up. Yeah. Well, you know, I... I swear to God, I'm not even I'm not even paying attention to the American. Uh, the nobody does. Anybody American, that's still in this music, no, nobody does. It's all J- yeah, Japan no. and Europe, Brazil. Really, Mexico. one of the reasons I did it is I had a band called Blasted Static. I don't know if you've heard that stuff, but they're all Aus- Austri- Aus- Australians. Stu Marshall from Death Dealer is a guitar player. Oh, I know and I Death write Dealer. With him I like really, that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, check out Blasted Static. We did a really good album. And the main reason I did that is because I want to go to Australia. <laughs> did you sing on that? You know. Oh, yeah. Oh, I got to check it out. Wrote, sing it. 
no, it's a great album. And and Rev Jones from Steelheart and from MSG is the bass player. Yeah, I've seen him quite a few times. I've done I've done a couple of Rev Jones uh, solo albums, which are pretty cool. Wow, I gotta check and, that out. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, there's a bunch of stuff out there. Yeah, I've done a million blues albums with all sorts of guys. And uh, you were, yeah. were you in that Blindside Blues project? Yeah, yeah I thought mm-hmm. so. I have I some was. of those with with Chasen. Yeah, he was the first bass player in it, and then then we got an, another fella that was really really fantastic. But uh, yeah, those were good. Records. Unfortunately, the guitar player is a grumpy old man, and I I just don't have any time for it. So. Um, hey Jeff, uh, Tom and I appreciate the uh, the talk today. I think it was uh, it was pretty cool, pretty enlightening. Some good stuff in there. Thanks. Ho- hopefully, I didn't brain fart too no, many times. No, 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 it was terrific. It was great. I'm getting up in age, and my Bidenisms are coming out. <laughs> no matter what side of the fence you are, you got to see those. You got to see those for what they are. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I agree, hundred um, percent. But now, hey, maybe we can do a part two at some point. I, I would like to because there's a lot of stuff that we but we usually operate well, around yeah, an you, hour. You, so I think we have another yeah, yeah. hour of uh, of chat in us. If, oh yeah, no, I've got rock and roll stories you can't believe. Yeah, Are you kidding me? You know, just 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 the just the stories alone are you know would take up time. Like I said, go th- go through what I've said, and I've said, well, that will take too long to talk about, and then we'll go talk about those. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, when that new project comes out, uh, Lethal X, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll have you back, and we'll we'll have some more yeah, stories. Exactly. We'd like to promote that. Beautiful. No, that'd be great. Appreciate it, Jeff. Killer. All right, guys. Thanks, right. brother. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks guys. for your time. Take care. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.